instead of responding the way that everybody expected that he would respond, he doesn't. And these two texts this week are so monumental, so elemental to our faith, that if we fail to grasp them, fail to see the way they change the script, we will miss almost everything there is to understand about Jesus. Not just Jesus, but ourselves. Not just Jesus and ourselves, but the church and the world. This is profoundly challenging stuff this week, y'all. So pray with me as we dig in. Jesus, I can't do this. I'm not, I'm not capable. I'm not worthy. What you say here is beyond my capacity to grasp, to obey. And yet I am the one who has ended up this morning with the microphone. So God, I pray that you will fill this room with your Holy Spirit. That you will give each of us the grace to be present to your word, to ourselves, to those around you, to your spirit. And that you would be the teacher this morning. That whatever words I use, you would breathe into them. Whatever I offer that is distracting, you would dissipate it. And God, as we have come into your presence today with worship and dedicating these children, we would continue to be present to you as your word is spoken. In Jesus' name, amen. Much of this week, our teaching team spent time trying to become unfamiliar. The two stories you're going to hear are incredibly familiar. As a matter of fact, I'm going to start them off, and you're instantly, probably, if you've been in church for any length of time, you're instantly just going to go to all the different ways you've heard this taught, all the different things you think about. And I'm going to have to ask you to be very conscious not to do that as we go and listen with fresh ears. Our text is taken from Luke chapter 10, and it starts with this. Now an expert in the religious law stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or as a different translation puts it, life in the coming age. And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you understand it? Now we have to understand here, eternal life or life in the coming age isn't this idea of heaven after you die. He wasn't, he wasn't saying, what do I have to do to get to heaven? He's saying, what do I have to do to be in the, in, the, in the company of the righteous? What do I have to do to be identified with those who when your, the God's kingdom comes back to earth, when that happens, I'll be on the right side of history? That's what he's asking here. And after Jesus asked him this question, the expert answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Now it's interesting, we don't find this command anywhere in the Old Testament as it is presented here. 
This is actually two verses put together from two, ver- from two different places. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength is in Deuteronomy. Love your neighbor as yourself is in Leviticus. And over the intervening years since that had done, the experts of the law had combined the two. Jesus wasn't the first to do this. Experts in the law had brought these two things together. He presents the answer. Jesus affirms it. And the lawyer could have walked away right there. We'd all be good. Do this and you will live. And the lawyer should have walked away. said, yes, great, awesome, on the right track. Thank you, Jesus. Going out. But... But the expert, wanting to justify himself or wanting to win the point, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? As we were studying this week, um, James brought brought this up, and it's, it's in a couple commentaries too, but I've never heard it before. This was a huge question for the Jewish community at the time. Because if I'm correct and James will correct me later if I'm wrong, you can read this in the Hebrew as to say, love your neighbor as yourself, or you can have just as legitimate a translation that says, love your neighbor who is like you. Now let that sink in for a minute. Think about the implications of this said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your, net, all your strength, all your mind, and love those people who are like you. Love your family. Love the people who vote like you do. Love the people who have the same skin color as you do. Love the people who worship the same place you do. You know, man, that alone is a pretty tall order, right? I mean, how many of us struggle to love those closest to us already? And so the command would come as as affirming to that, yes, you're to act in love toward your spouse. You're to act in love towards those who look like you. Salute the same flag. And this was a debate that was going on, and this goes to the core of what this expert in the law is asking. And it's a good thing we've got that solved, though, right? I mean, it's a good thing that none of us struggle with that. It's a good thing that that Jesus took care of that once and for all. Or or did he? Because I would propose to you this morning that that is the same question that all of us ask. Do we love the family that looks like us, the neighbor that looks like us? Or do we love our neighbors as ourselves? So while we might not even be conscious conscious of that dilemma, it is still a question that is dividing people in the church today. And you see, we're in a place where we respond to Jesus' commands the same way we respond to a Facebook post that we like. We like it, right? We, we click the little thumbs up. Thumbs up, Jesus. Love your neighbors yourself. Thumbs up. Or maybe a little heart, you know? Thumbs up, heart. Smiley face. You know, if we're really righteous. Thumbs up, heart. Smiley face. Man, we're, we're right there with you. Yeah, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. It goes far beyond that. And so he 
responds with this story. Instead of just arguing one point or another, as Jesus often does, he responds with a parable. And he says, once, basically he says, once upon a time, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him up, and went off, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, but when he saw the injured man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came up to the same place, saw and passed by on the other side. So you've got one man coming down from worship. He's, he's on a spiritual high, man. He's been up there at the, at the temple. He's done his duties. He's, he's filled up, man. He's been singing the songs. He's going back home. And then you've got another one going up, and he's got to get ready. He's, got to, he's dressed for church. He's got his Bible under his arm. He's, he's got that, you know, right on schedule to get there just on time. And they're crossing, and there's a half beaten to death, naked man lying in the ditch. And they pass by. Now, around the time of Christ, as we talked about earlier, there were sayings, parables, setups, scripts that followed. And usually you would have a priest, it would start with a priest, and then it would add a Levite, and then the third person would be a common man, kind of Joe the plumber type. And the third person was always going to be the hero of the story, just like we do with the jokes, right? A priest, a Jew, a rabbi, or a rabbi and a preacher walk into a bar, right? Well, the guy who's, like, who's named last, he's going to be the hero of the story. So they go, here's a priest, here's a Levite, and they're going, okay. And now the common guy is going to come along, right? The common Jew. And he's going to pick up this guy and help him out. But no, it's a Samaritan. And if you've heard this story, we don't need to go into into detail here, but there was a visceral hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews. And this wasn't just like ethnic, like we're better than you ethnic-wise. It is like represented why I wore this today. You want to know how much hatred there is? Go read anything on the Jews and the Palestinians right now. And although the Palestinians are not direct descendants of the Samaritans, the type of bloodthirsty hatred that is expressed between the two groups is indicative of what the hatred would be between the Jews and the Samaritans with that. And so Jesus inserts, instead of the common average Jew, the carpenter, the bricklayer, the fisherman, he says the Samaritan. It says, but a Samaritan who was traveling came to where the injured man was, and when he saw him, he felt compassion for him. And he went to, up to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And here again, Luke, as we followed through, right? He just can't seem to get enough of seeing people, of having compassion on people, and how those are related, how you have to see someone to have compassion on them. How you have to open your eyes to see that person to have compassion then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever else you spend, I will repay you when I come back this way. And then Jesus says, which of these three, kind of a rhetorical question, right? Which of these three do you think became a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the religious law not even able to bring himself to say the word Samaritan, right? Says, um, the one who showed him mercy. So Jesus, again, 
repeats what he said earlier. Go and do the same. Look, not only does this story help define who our neighbor is, but to what extent it means to love them. Again, loving our neighbor is not a matter of liking their profile on media post. It's not enough to change our picture to their flag in our background. It involves active, intentional, sacrificial interaction. And to what extent is that action? To what end does it go? Well, it means personal sacrifice of tremendous consequence. It may, be, it may be sacrificing your social standing. It implies physical discomfort, monetary loss, with no exception, with no expectation of repayment, and no exception as to the person. And being the church demands that we love beyond our walls and our tribe, beyond people who look and act and love and believe like us. Now let me tell you what this is not. This is not some general moralistic tale of helping those in need, right? This is not go join the Good Samaritan Club so you help people who break down on the side of the road. Although you ought to do that. It's a good thing. This is not just some morality tale that says, hey, just give more. This is about our core identity as a church. This is a story, in this story, is the seed of the radical gospel message of the kingdom of God that changes everything we understand about what is good, safe, reasonable, and right. N.T. Wright says it this way. He says, what is at stake then as now is the question of whether we will use the God-given revelation of love and grace as a way of boosting our own sense of isolated security and purity, or whether we will see it as a call and challenge to extend that love and grace to the whole world, without exception. Now to look no further to the, and, and to further the point, Luke puts the following story right after it. Now, chronologically, the story that follows this couldn't have happened just then. Chronologically, this happens much closer to the crucifixion. But Luke, for some reason, puts it immediately following the story of the, of the Good Samaritan. So these two stories are in dialogue with one another. And as we'll see, that's a pretty necessary balance. And so now he tells the story of Mary and Martha. Again, a story with which we're very familiar now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a certain village where there was a woman named Martha, where a woman named Martha welcomed him as a guest. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he said. But Martha was distracted with all the preparations she had to make. So she came up to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, which is a term of endearment. So this is a gentle rebuke. Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed. Mary has chosen the best part, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, careful, careful, because you've heard this. And you probably have heard this. Even though it's not a BuzzFeed questionnaire, it could be. Are you a Mary or are you a Martha? Right? We've, been, we've had this offered as personality types. Well, are you contemplative or are you the active type? Are you a Mary type or are you a Martha type? And we make it all about us. And it ain't about us. 
at all. And there's only one hero here, and that's Mary. Martha is not doing what she should. Sorry if you ever pegged out on being a Martha in the BuzzFeed personality test you took. It's not about that at all. This is, again, this is, Jesus is flipping this script. You see, Mary presents a problem. Mary is acting like a man. She's doing something that was only reserved for men in that culture and that she was a disciple of Jesus. Not just a follower, not just someone who supported, her out of the, supported him out of her means. She was a disciple. Sitting at the feet, this is not some kind of fawning, listening to a lecture and information for information's sake. It just didn't happen that way in that world. Girls, little girls did not just sit at the feet of a rabbi and listen to him for entertainment. They were not to be seen. They were to be separated. They were to be in the women's quarters. They were to be involved with all the practical preparations of food and lodging for the men. And the reason why it would be unheard of for a woman to sit at the feet of the rabbi is because the only people who sat at the foot of the rabbi were going to become rabbis themselves. That wasn't done. There were no female rabbis. So by implication here, what we see is Jesus consistently inviting women to be his followers with the intention that they would likewise turn up and be teachers. Listen, is Martha overworked? Yeah, she is. She needs help. She shouldn't be in the kitchen by herself doing all that stuff. She's got a little bit of a martyr complex. <laughs> yeah. But that's not the problem. The problem is Mary is acting like a man. And Jesus is treating her like one. And he affirms her in it. Now, what do these two stories have to do with one another? Because, listen... We hear, the story, we hear the story of the Good Samaritan. And the easy thing, honestly, the easiest thing for me to do, the easiest thing for me to do as a preacher right now is get you all worked up about how you just got to be nicer, about how you got to be more inclusive, about how you got to give more stuff away, about how you got to see you know, the, the least and the lost and the lonely and the outcast. And, and you need to. We need to. I need to do that. But that's not the, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is, who are we as a church? What, is it, what does it mean that the kingdom of God has come and destroyed all those barriers? We're not just, it's not about us crossing barriers, it's about the kingdom of God destroying those barriers. And the same thing with Mary and Martha. I mean, it would be easy to sit here and go, hey, listen, we all need to be more contemplative, we all need to sit at the feet of Jesus. And no, listen, this is about who is going to be allowed at the table. Who's gonna, whose voice is going to be heard within the church? Who are we going to honor and recognize as part of the leadership who is called and gifted to lead the church forward? That's what we have to decide. That's what's being taught here. And when we hold those two things together, when we don't just rush off in, in superficial acts of sacrifice, and when we stop and go, okay, who has God called us to be and who has he brought into this fellowship that we, need to, that we need to recognize? And by sitting at the feet of Jesus, 
we see all of those relationships transformed. Well, then we start, then we start to get it. And we can do all those other good things. We can do all those other good work. All those things come out. Now, great, right? John, good. You made your point. <clears throat> Let me tell you why we're not going to do this. Let me tell you why I'm not going to do this. Let me tell you why you're not going to do this. In C.S. Lewis's um, masterful, imaginative novel, The Screwtape Letters, Norma sent this to me this week. Screwtape is writing to Wormwood, and he's saying, look, basically, in essence, this is what you've got to do. You have to keep your person convinced that every hardship that comes along, that every, everything that comes along that he hasn't planned, that he hasn't chosen, everything that comes along that, that disquiets his life, everything that, that stirs things up, you need to convince him that those things are taking away from something that he has a right to. You need to convince him that his life is his own, basically. That his time is his own. And that he's owed a good life. That he's owed these things. He's owed a day where he can do what he wants to do. He's owed a family relationship where he gets along with his spouse. He's owed it that his children will be perfect. And that anything that comes against that, anything that maybe brings some squabble in, or the children don't act like they're supposed to, or there's a financial hit, that, that's, that's taking away from something that he's owed. And in that, if you do that, he will stay angry, he will stay frustrated, and he will constantly fight for his own safety and his own security. And he'll basically be useless to the kingdom. The reason why I'm not going to obey this because I believe my life is my own. I believe I'm owed good health. Deep down, really deep down. I mean, I may not say it, but the way that I act, the way that I operate, I operate like I am owed a good life. I am owed health. I am owed children who grow up to be beautiful and successful and not a problem. That I'm owed to come into this church and not have any of you Approach me with any need that you have in your life that disrupts my happiness. Now, I maybe give lip service to it, right? Because, you know, that's what preachers do. And I may act all compassionate. But really, deep down, this is all about me. I would dare say that is how many of us feel deep down is that we're owed a good life. We're owed an easy life. We're owed a successful life. And that anything that challenges that angers us. And so when we encounter the person lying half dead on the road while we're coming or going to our worship, we ignore them. when we get involved in our religious activities and we see someone else fulfilling the calling that they're called to do by sitting at the feet of Jesus, we get annoyed. And we come up with all kinds of religious doctrines and we come up with all kinds of cultural statements about why we shouldn't do this. 
about how it's wrong. But really, at the root of it, it's because it ain't about me. Now, before you think I'm accusing anybody else in here, let me tell you this. This scripture is destroying me because I don't want to admit those things. I knew if I didn't write them down to admit them this morning, I wouldn't do it because I want you to think well of me. I want you to think I've got it all together, or at least a little bit more, maybe. I don't. I want to love the people who look like me. I don't want to have to love the people that are like me. And I want to just play the game. I just want to play the religious game. I just want to find the most competent according to the world. I just want to go along with the culture. I just want to do those things because it's easier. And deep down, I feel like that's what I'm owed. And y'all, if I am going to obey this, if I am going to obey this, I need you to do it with me. I cannot do it by myself. I cannot obey the scripture by myself in my own power just by trying harder with it. I ask the worship team to come up. And it may seem like a, a rough segue into worship. But I also know this, that along with the necessity of community to contemplate, to wrestle with these things, again, listen, don't believe me just because I said it, just because I'm the guy with the mic, doesn't mean that you agree, that you have to agree. You've got, we've got our community groups, we've got our grace groups to discuss these things as we go. But along with community in this, <clears throat> I also know it starts with worship. It starts with counting my blessings. It starts with me sitting at the feet of Jesus. It starts with me turning my eyes towards Jesus. It starts with me looking at Jesus and who he is. I need to know that face. I need to know that man. I need to know him better than I know anybody else. And so we're going to worship to start that. Thank you for being here this morning.